This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, welcome to Remnant Radio. My name is Michael Roundtree. Joshua Lewis is out today on a cruise and joining with his wife, but we are going to have fun. I uh, got Michael Miller joining me in the co-host seat today, What's and up? we are talking about transhumanism, designer babies and robot people, and what does that do to the image of God and all the exciting topics. So uh, excited to interview Dr. Fazali, and uh, in just a moment, Fazali Rana is his name. And so we'll be back with you. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Okay, guys, here we are talking transhumanism. Super excited. Uh, hey, before we dive in, just want you guys to know that Redmond Radio is crowdfunded. And so if you are blessed by our content, then love for you guys to consider uh, donating. You can see it in the links of the description. You can do a one-time donation through PayPal or a recurring one uh, through Patreon. You have access to exclusive content there. So hope you guys will check that out. And, uh, and also, help us out by liking, commenting, and, uh, and hitting that subscribe button, too. Now, without further ado, uh, Michael Miller over there in Denver, thank you for joining us for, for an interview format. Used to having you on the Wednesday show, uh, but it's fun to have you on the Monday show, too. So, yeah. uh, how are you doing over there in Denver? Good, bro. I'll just I'll just be the eye candy for this episode. Nothing really to contribute. <laughs> it's all you ever are, Michael. Yeah, just, just just some eye candy for you. <laughs> well, well, we just we just actually want to see your hair. Uh, somebody was commenting. Does does Miller <laughs> actually does he have hair? Is he covering something? I said, well, he actually has a I'd nickname. Tell you what. His nickname is Hats. I can't get used yeah. to it because that nickname arose after my day. But uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. after we were <laughs> when we were bro, the same church together, we called you Michael. But then yeah. people start calling you Hats. Well, yeah, I'll, so I'll make you a deal. Anybody who shows up to the Remnant Radio Conference will actually get to see me not wear a hat. How's that? How's that? <laughs> okay. We'll see if there's yeah. anything there, I, if I have I any hair or not. I think that's a good deal. So make sure you guys <laughs> sign up for that conference. And um, so March 2nd through the 4th, going to be super exciting. Remnant Radio having our first conference. Uh, but okay, we want to dive into this subject. Transhumanism intersects on so many different things, intersects on obviously theology, but besides theology, there's, uh, there's technology, there's philosophy, there's ethics, there's so many big questions to consider. And of course, some of you are listening, you're like, I don't know what transhumanism even is. So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about that too, but I want you to meet our guest, Dr. Fazali Rana, is uh, an expert on this subject, and uh, he is the CEO at Reasons to Believe. Has written a lot of books, uh, and he's really, really smart. So uh, you guys are going to be uh, going to be blessed. And uh, Dr. Fazali Rana has told us not to call him Dr. Rana, and his first name Fazali. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You can correct me um, because I, what I really know is your nickname, which is Fuzz. He, likes to, he goes by Fuzz. So uh, we're going to call him Fuzz for the rest of the show. Uh, but Fuzz, tell us just a little bit about yourself uh, and, and also uh, maybe just books you're writing or that you've written that, uh, uh, that people can connect with you and, and your ministry through. Yeah, well, um, I've been uh, with Reasons to Believe for uh, 23 years, and um, it's an organization that explores uh, the interaction between science and the Christian faith. Um, we are a, a scientific apologetics organization, but we really see ourselves as uh, developing apologetics material in service of evangelism. So uh, we see our mission is to open people to the gospel by revealing God in science. 
and uh, I'm a biochemist by training and have written a number of books on the origin of life, on uh, the, the design of biochemical systems, uh, also uh, work in synthetic biology where scientists are trying to create new novel life forms in the laboratory. Also very interested in the question of human origins and that is really what led me to the, the whole uh, question of transhumanism. A couple of years ago, I had a book published called Humans 2.0, where we look at the, the question of transhumanism from a Christian perspective, really asking the, the question, how should we as Christians engage this particular topic? And it's a, no easy measure. It's a very complex interplay of a number of different areas, as you pointed out, Michael. Um, and uh, if people are interested in our organization, they can go to our website, www.reasons.org, and learn more about uh, our, our, what we're about and, and the resources that we have to help people uh, connect science with the Christian faith. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, why don't we just dive in then with the question of what is transhumanism? Because a lot of our people don't even know precisely what that is. So could you give us just a, a definition and talk to us about the different areas of, of theology even that this touches on? Yeah, well, um, you know, if people who are watching this or listening to this aren't familiar with the term transhumanism, join the club. Because I find most people are unfamiliar with the term but you actually are probably very familiar with the concepts of transhumanism. Uh, transhumanism in a nutshell is this idea that we as human beings have a moral imperative to use technology to modify our biological makeup, uh, to, to use technology to make us stronger and smarter and more psychologically well-adjusted, uh, to use technology to overcome are, are the flaws of the human body to overcome our limitations as human beings. And the hope is that in doing so, we will mitigate pain and suffering and that we will maybe even uh, pave a pathway to a type of utopia. Now, this idea of transhumanism has been around since the turn of the last century. Probably the first scientist to uh, articulate what we might call the transhumanist vision was J.B.S. Haldane in his book, The Atlas. Now, if you're not familiar with the book, again, uh, join the club, but this book was the inspiration for a book that probably most people are familiar with, which is Huxley's book, The Brave New World. And so that idea of the brave new world really encapsulates what transhumanism is all about. This was an idea that was considered to be a fringe idea. Uh, and in the last decade, it's moved from kind of the periphery of the academy into the mainstream of the academy. And it's because we now have the technologies, or at least we're on the cusp of having the technologies, that's going to allow us to pursue and, and maybe even fulfill uh, the transhumanist vision. So it's an idea that Again, seems like it's the, the stuff for, of science fiction, but it really is a, 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 an idea that is becoming a reality before our very eyes. And I think that there's not going to be an idea that is more important in the next couple of decades than the idea of transhumanism. This is going to be a, an idea that will shape um, really the, the world that we live in over the course of the next couple of decades. You, you've mentioned the transhuman vision. Uh, can you define that for me? You said that twice, and I'm not sure our audience would know what that is. Yeah, well, you know, again, the idea of transhumanism is that we have this obligation to use technology to modify our biological makeup. But the question is, towards what end, right? And that really is the transhumanist vision, uh, is why would we want to do that? And the idea behind transhumanism seems to be very much uh, couched in terms of science and technology, but at the end of the day, it really is a philosophical idea, maybe even a religious idea, because the ultimate goal of transhumanism is not only to mitigate human pain and suffering through the use of technology, but to try to usher in a utopian world. Uh, and the, the, the idea here is that 
we turn to science and technology to solve many of the problems that we experience. That the idea of the enlightenment is that through science and technology, we would become the masters of our own fate. We would become the masters of nature. And transhumanism is looking to become masters of our own bodies, where we would modify our bodies at will to, again, to overcome our limitations, to, uh, to improve upon, quote unquote, the human condition, and to ultimately overcome the greatest problem that faces any of us, which is our impending death, right? The, the impending death of humanity, our impending death as individuals. If Can we use science and technology to overcome our own uh, mortality? Can we attain a, a practical immortality through science and technology? Uh, and many people see that the only way to do that is to take control of our own evolution and to evolve humanity beyond our current state into these post-human species that would be ideally suited for the world that we would create uh, through science and technology. So it really is very much a religious idea where we're, we're ultimately looking to save ourselves through science and technology. Okay, so uh, you talk in your book, and, and by the way, a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you talk specifically about techno-faith. So as you talk about this religious idea that it's like, so we're trying to save ourselves through technology. There, it seems like there's an eschatology that we're working toward of achieving utopia, maybe even immortality. Uh, how does techno-faith play into this? And, and what do you mean when you use this phrase or this yeah phrase, word, phrase, I guess? Yeah. And, and I didn't coin that, that term. I can't remember uh, where I, I first heard the term, but it's ultimately the idea that what ultimately is going to save us as human beings is what we can accomplish through our understanding of the world through science and then applying that understanding in developing technology. So it really is, in a sense, a, a religious system that is fueled by kind of a materialistic, naturalistic, atheistic worldview that, you know, uh, that, you know, all that is, is our physical existence. You know, as Carl Sagan said, the universe is all that there was, is, and ever will be. And, and yet and many people that are transhumanists uh, recognize that there seems to be something tragic about the, the death of individuals and, and the potential death of humanity. And so the, the only way they see for us to save ourselves is through the use of science and technology. Now, from a Christian worldview perspective, science and technology are wonderful tools that we can use, I think, to, to uh, live out the, the principles of the kingdom of God, right? That I, I think mm -hmm. science is a gift that God has given to us that allows us through technology to unleash his, the providential care that he offers us through the creation. Uh, but with uh, transhumanism, and with techno faith, you know, you're going to the to the extreme where science and technology are not simply tools to um, to promote human flourishing, but they are tools that, that ultimately, as you pointed out, are eschatological in nature, where it's where we're ultimately going to find our salvation. So the the false nature of this gospel is that, that uh, I mean, no different than any other. Um, thing is basically we're going to become gods. We've got the technology to make ourselves into uh, our own little deities that are indestructible. It's like and, the original so sin all over again. Right, right. Well, I was thinking original sin, uh, you know, you're going to be like the gods, a tower of Babel, achieving yep. the heavens, achieving the gods, uh, reaching them on your own. And it's always to circumvent our own need for God. And that's the false nature of it. But a lot of it sounds like it's actually... Um, some of it is beneficial and good. Like, you know, when you think about um, the idea of prosthetics and, and people using those as a replacement for an arm, or like I think of Star Wars and, uh, you know, how, how Luke Skywalker gets his hand chopped off by his by Darth Vader. And for those of you who don't know, it's his dad. I just ruined that one for you. If you haven't seen it by now, <laughs> shame on you. Uh, but but he ends up, you know, having a robotic hand. I mean, that seems like a good thing, right? So we wouldn't we yeah. wouldn't necessarily want to stop those kind of things, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the 
the complexity of, of the transhumanist vision is that you know, there are these remarkable technologies that are being developed, CRISPR gene editing, uh, brain-computer interfaces, robotic prosthetic limbs, um, you know, even advances in, in anti-aging. There have been some recent scientific reports where people have been able, through the course of a, of a study, to not only arrest the aging process, but actually reverse it so that the, the test subjects are actually two or three years biologically younger than their chronological age after being administered different drug cocktails and things like that. Jeez. Crazy, crazy stuff. But when you recognize that that aging is actually one of the greatest risks for cardiovascular disease, for diabetes, for cancer, you know, and the list goes on and on and on, that being able to arrest or reverse the aging process makes sense from a from a biomedical standpoint, because it potentially could revolutionize uh, medicine and and really uh, delay the onset of, of many diseases that again are today very much part of the aging process. So these are wonderful possible technologies, but each of these medical technologies has a, a whole slew of, of, of very uh, complex ethical issues connected with them as well. But these same technologies that could be used for enormous amount of good could be used to create designer humans or to uh, to enhance human beings beyond our natural biological limits. Now, is it wrong to enhance uh, you know human beings beyond our natural biological limits? I, you know that's something I still am wrestling with myself. But there seems to be this line that you could cross <laughs> that where mm -hmm. you know the enhancements go from serving a, a some kind of legitimate purpose to actually really undermining our very nature as human beings. Uh, hey, give me an example. Well, um, uh, well, you know, one example would be uh, brain computer interface technology. Now, this is crazy stuff, uh, but uh, and, and, and there's not an area of, bi of bioengineering that's hotter today than developing brain computer interfaces. But these are literally electronic devices that you either implant in the brain or place on the surface of the brain uh, that allow the, the user to control with the, their, their thoughts uh, computer hardware and computer software. And this is either done through active training where they learn to manipulate electrical activity in their brain to produce particular outcomes with computer systems or you have uh, uh, basically these machine learning algorithms that will extract the electrical activity in the brain and interpret what the user intent is. And so using this technology, they've shown that you can actually have somebody think and that th their thoughts can be converted into texts with a high degree of accuracy. Now, this is something that would allow somebody that's locked in who can't communicate to be able to communicate with people. Like powerful. stroke victims. Uh, yes. I mean, yes. Our, our mentor's wife, uh, Lisa Deer, she had uh, a number of, she was in a drug-induced coma for a while and she's lost the ability to speak. And so for someone like her, this would be a massive step forward to be able to communicate again in, in the way she used to. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So enormous amount of good. But there's interesting things that you can begin to do with brain-computer interfaces because now... Uh, you can begin to exert your influence remotely in different parts of the world by coupling, you know, brain-computer interface technology with access to the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, or you can begin to do things like potentially tether brains together. There have been interesting studies with. <laughs> oh with wow! That. Okay, that, yeah, that's brain netting, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, like, I gotta like hear more about this. Well, like there have been interesting studies done with um, at lab animals. Like you can take two rats and one rat, uh, you train to hit a lever and it, it'll get a reward. And then the other rat is untrained. And if they both have brain computer interfaces that are tethered together, the rat and, and both rats can see each other and they both have access to that those levers. But one rat knows what to do and the other one doesn't. The rat that knows what to do can actually uh, tr transfer that understanding to the rat that doesn't know what to do. And so by that rat thinking about 
activating the lever, the other rat will activate the lever, even though it's not trained to do so, and get the reward. And so you this now sounds are like having... Star Trek, the board. Oh yeah, crazy. I mean, that's exactly it is. It's, it's like one it's crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, that yeah, that is what There's I remember. Ethical one... implications I want to hear too. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, one one example I remember from your book was it was like a guy was hooked up to a computer in some way. You you know the way I I can't remember the way, but anyway, somehow he was hooked up, and he thought about moving like his pointer finger or something. And then some other dude who was wired in had some sort of cap on his head, I think. Like, he involuntarily moved his finger in the way that the guy thought about so that you could actually send mental signals to other people in other locations via the internet. This this yeah. is crazy. Is that, so it's like, could, he's controlling I somebody else's finger. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you could control people. Uh, this this could get dark. Um, yeah. Did, I, work, did I recite that example correctly? Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the, you got the, the, the concept. But And so the point <laughs> is, is that once you start looking at potentially tethering brains together, the question is becomes, are you losing your identity, you know, as an individual? And who now becomes responsible, you know, for an action that, that is executed, right? Is it the collective? Is it the individual that carries out that action? And so that's a place where you begin to see, you know, a loss of, of maybe what it means to be a human being but something else that, that's interesting, too, is there's a new area in, in bioethics called neuroethics in terms of how do you actually deal with the ethical questions with these brain-computer interfaces. So even when you're using them for medical application, people are beginning to, to be concerned. So, for example, you can use brain-computer interface technology to control the symptoms of Parkinson's disease where you uh, send electrical stimulation to certain parts of the brain that help to arrest the Parkinson uh, syndrome uh, symptoms. The problem That's a huge is, breakthrough. is that, oh yeah, the problem is is that by doing that, you actually alter the personality of the Parkinson's patient, so they oh. become less risk risk averse, uh, and uh, as a result of that, you then begin to wonder, okay, is the the agreement on that part of that patient for subsequent use of that brain computer interface something? they would have normally assent, uh, consented to, apart from having that interface, because again, they become less risk averse. Right? So you're, you're literally are altering their personality. Or if you're using machine learning algorithms to extract user intent from a brain computer interface, you know, who's actually making the decision to engage in an action? Is it the, <laughs> is it the, the person? Is it the, a collaboration between the person and the brain-computer interface, or is it actually the algorithm you develop to extract the user intent? And, yeah. and so, it, so these are, and this is w with just simple, straightforward medical applications where you're not trying to do anything nefarious; you're trying to to help people. But now, when you start looking at using this for enhancement purposes, these ethical questions become, you know, even more profound. So. Are you losing your, your, your genuine identity as a human being through the use of this technology? And, you know, or, you know, mm. it, so, you know, these yeah. are the types of this, this is the place where the line seems to be, you know, muddied, right? Right. Where do you, where, where, where do you cross the line, you know, or should you cross a particular line? And even where is that line to begin with? Right. It, uh, it's interesting because it, it seems like we have the same problem of just like what is humanity and at what point do we cross that line on two sides on, on one side it's like if my brain is hooked up to some other dude or somehow in collaboration with people through electronic signals and I commit a crime am I accountable have I lost my identity so I can lose my identity that way but then and I want to read a quote to you this is from James Hughes and you quote this in your book and he uses this language of post-human, which also sounds like possibly losing your identity. Uh, but it, it starts to come down to the image of God. I'm going to read the quote, and, I'm on, and then I'll ask a question kind of along these lines. It says, in the 21st century, the convergence of AI, nanotechnology, genetic and genetic engineering will allow human beings to achieve things previously imagined only in science fiction. 
Lifespans will extend well beyond a century. Our senses, and in your book, you say some people think hundreds of years. Our senses and cognition will be enhanced. Uh, we will gain control over our emotions and memory. We will merge with machines, and machines will become more like humans. These technologies will allow us to evolve into varieties of post-humans, post-humans, and usher us into a transhuman era and society. So the question I want to ask you is your definition of the image of God, and does what he's describing or any of the things that we're talking about, whether it be post-human or brains hooking up and someone else controlling, like, uh, are we losing our identity as human beings made in the image of God? And I know that that hinges on your definition of being made in the image of God. So if you could talk about that, that'd be great. Yeah, and, and I would love to hear your perspective on this. because <laughs> I, I like the is, way you defined is, it in the book. Yeah, I mean, this, this is really where... Um, things become very, very messy. <laughs> you know, I, now I hold to a resemblance view or a structuralist view uh, of the image of God, where I think the image of God refers to certain attributes or capacities that we have uniquely as human beings uh, that distinguish us or separate us from other creatures. Now, that particular view doesn't uh, necessarily obviate like a, a representative view or a relational view, because I would argue that the function as God's representatives here on earth would require certain attributes that make us exceptional compared to other creatures. To enter uniquely into a relationship with God, again, would require certain attributes that we would share imperfectly with, with God. Uh, and so I don't think you know the structuralist view negates the rep representative view or the relational view, but I think it really is the the perspective yeah. that, and and actually that, even to back you up just for a second just for our viewers uh could you just real quickly tell us the resemblance view representative view and relational view and then just kind of keep going with that question sure thing so that the um the resemblance view would be that we have certain attributes that again we would share with god that separate us from other creatures the representative view is that the image of God really refers to our responsibility uh, as human beings, not our uh, innate capacity, and that we are to function as God's vice regent, God's viceroy mm -hmm. here on earth, that we are to be stewards and caretakers of the planet. We are to exercise dominion over the creation. And then the last view would be the relational view, that the image of God is in reference to a, a, a unique relationship that we have with God uh, and 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 again, these three views are not mutually exclusive. They can be, right. I think, fully compatible. And they all three have biblical warrant. They all three have a, a, a biblical uh, biblical evidence that supports those views. Uh, you know, but I see the image of God as being, in a sense, immaterial, an imp Im immaterial aspect of our our nature. Uh, and so. In, in that sense, you could do quite a bit to the human body and not necessarily compromise um, uh, the, imago our, the Imago Dei, right? And, and, and so in one sense, you could argue that no matter what we do to ourselves as human beings, we ultimately are going to be, you know, again, retain the image of God. However, you know, I would argue that, you know, and, and again, you guys are the theologians. I'm I'm just a biochemist here, but but you know we play at theology. We should say we just play. We're not theologians. We, we just play. <laughs> well, but but for example, you know, my understanding is that really, as as human beings, we're not ghosts in the machine. But in other words, it's not the image of God or, or an immaterial aspect to our nature, our soul, kind of bouncing around inside a a, a you know a, a container, but rather. Our, our spiritual and physical aspects are integrated. They're, they're inseparable in, 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 in that sense. To be you know, fully human would be to, both, to be both physical as well as spiritual in nature, which means that there is an interplay between the image of God and between our physical makeup. And so I always see the brain as being kind of like the hardware and the image of God being like the software. And if the hardware becomes damaged, right? Uh, 
that, that it may be very challenging uh, to properly express the image of God, but it doesn't mean the image of God isn't there. Mm-hmm. It just means that, that because the hardware isn't working right, the image of God isn't fully and appropriately expressed. Uh, so, you know, if you start talking about in that model, if you start talking about, you know, manipulating uh, our, our, you know, mental or our brains with, you know, uh, brain computer interface technology, if you start tethering brains together, it may be that you alter our, the, the, the brain in such a way that the image of God, though it's still present, may not be properly expressed. So those are just some okay. now, yeah. wouldn't we? Miller, I just I just wanted to say on the front end, whenever this stuff develops, the the answer in advance to whether or not you can tether your brain to mine is no. I'm not going to let it. Uh, you'll you'll change your mind, trust me, or I'll tether it and change it for you. So so you could you can be the eye candy, and then but then your your brain is tethered to mine. So I'll take a mind. few leaps in my human evolution just by being. Te- being brain tethered to Roundtree. Uh, I was going to say, uh, this is already true. We would say that we are the Imago Dei still. We're still the image of God, but our bodies have been affected by the fall. Um, yeah. You know, my, my hair is getting grayer and grayer. I have Amen. a hiatal hernia. I mean, already the structural nature of who I am has been marred, and but it has not taken away uh, the image of God. You would agree with that on the front end, right? Yes, I would. Yeah, and that's a, that's actually a very helpful insight. Um, you know, uh, you know, and you know, also when you factor in the idea of, of of our sin nature, you know, we do bear the image of God, but the the image of God because of our sin nature is again not being expressed the way that God originally intended at the point of creation, and so when you know we. Uh, accept Christ into our heart, and we start to undergo this transformation to become more and more like Christ, we really are becoming more and more capable of expressing the image of God as God intended it to be expressed. Um, and, and so we are in a process of, of recovering, you know, that, that true Im- image of God, you know, through you know, the process of sanctification. So that's a, that's a helpful concept i think to to bring to bear you know when it, when we talk about you know can we modify our, ourselves to such a degree that we lose the image of god i well, tend to think the answer how does is medication no. fit into this because we modify well, our chemistry just i mean i took an antibiotic because i had strep throat did i modify and, and also some medicines we take do alter our personality right. i mean you think about an antidepressant Right. Or uh, certain drugs that would actually cause a person to have more anxiety or less right. anxiety. Right. I mean, we're tampering with this stuff all the time. Yeah, and, and I see that as as that we are affecting brain chemistry, and the brain is again in in this crude analogy of hardware and software. The brain is the hardware, so we're modifying the hardware, hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that we are actually, you know, altering, uh, the, you know, the the image of God in any way by doing that. We may make it easier or more difficult or more challenging, you know, for the image of God to be expressed. You know, for, you know, w- one criticism against the, the structuralist view or the resemblance view is, well, what about people, for example, with Down syndrome? Do they lack the image of God? Or does somebody who, you know, is doesn't suffer from Down syndrome, do they have the image of God to a greater degree than, than somebody who, you know, again, suffers from some kind of mental, you know, uh, limitation. And my answer is no, it's just simply the issue that that there's a a problem with the hardware, but that the image of God is still present. Um, You know, so, uh, so I would see, you know, the the use of antidepressants, you know, for example, in that capacity where, you know, depression or other types of of mental illness, you know, really represent, you know, um, uh, abnormal brain chemistry that can maybe be corrected or mitigated to some degree with medication. So I don't see that as altering the image of God. Uh, but again, there's this interplay between the, the physical and the immaterial. And, you know, um, you do see people that, that have personality changes as a result of a stroke or, 
or things like that. So it's not a, a nice, clean division, I guess. Right. Okay. Now, on a specific talk, uh, technology, talk to us about CRISPR gene editing, just what it is, how it can be used for good, for ill. And uh, and I'd, I'd love to, to think, like, on the ill side, possibly, you've touched a little bit on evolving ourselves or evolution. And one of the quotes earlier uh, touched on that as well, uh, especially as we talk about post-humans. What was unique to me and I kind of eye-opening as I was reading your book, I was just thinking about, you know, if I dyed my hair blonde or I put in, you know, green contacts, so my eyes changed to green instead of blue, these, these would be things like if I had babies, it's not like my babies would have that in the genetic pool uh, because it was just something external. But if I edit my genes, however I edit my genes, it enters into the gene pool and then becomes part of the human evolution. So uh, just talk to us about CRISPR and its role on that, and maybe you could wax philosophical for us on the end. Yeah, yeah. And CRISPR is one of these transformative technologies. It, it's essentially a, a gene editing technique that allows researchers with very high precision to go in and to modify the, the genome of an organism, to modify the DNA of an organism. And, and so you can think of CRISPR as being like a, a pair of scissors where you can, again, cut away pieces of, of the DNA. And in some instances, you're just simply, you know, deleting pieces of the genome. Other instances, you're cutting away pieces of the genome. And then through uh, a number of different types of uh, manipulations, you can actually introduce a piece of donor DNA that would be incorporated into the into the genome at the region where you actually spliced out or cut out uh, that, that particular piece of DNA. And so it's a very high precision gene editing technique that allows us to, to target specific changes in the genome. Now, where this becomes extremely useful from a biomedical standpoint is that we know of probably somewhere between five to 10,000 uh, genetic disorders that involve mutations to a single region of the of the genome. And so in principle, you could then go in and replace the defective region of the genome with a healthy version of that of the genome. Uh, so uh, let me give a, a concrete example. Cystic fibrosis is a disease that is caused by a mutation, a, a single uh, base pair change in the in the gene that codes for a something called a chloride transporter. This is a, a protein embedded in the cell membrane that moves chloride ions across the membrane. And when you have uh, cystic fibrosis, that mutation in that single gene actually uh, causes people to suffer from uh, breathing problems where you have all this fluid and stuff that begins to accumulate and mucus that begins to accumulate in the lungs. And you know the prognosis isn't good for someone with cystic fibrosis, even though the, the medical treatment has improved dramatically, there's no way to, to cure that disease. So the idea is that if you could use CRISPR and you could replace that defective gene with a healthy version of the gene, you could actually uh, maybe mitigate the, the symptoms of cystic fibrosis, maybe even, you know, uh, I, I don't think you could potentially cure the people of the disease, but you could at least eliminate uh, or mitigate the symptoms. So the idea is that you would develop some kind of aerosol that people could take that would introduce the gene editing package into the lung cells. And even if a, a 10 or 20% of those lung cells were successfully gene edited, that would make a dramatic improvement in, in the person suffering from cystic fibrosis. Now, you know, to your point, Michael, that would, um, would not be actually a genetic change that would be passed on to the next generation okay. because you're only modifying the, the, the cells and the genome of the cells in the lungs. But if you actually modify the, the cells, the gametes, the, 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 the sex cells, or if you do the gene editing uh, during the process of embryo formation, like in in vitro fertilization, now you would actually introduce uh, genes into the into the into the that genome, organism. the human pool of, of right, and genetic that would then makeup. Be, 
Right. That's and a that would permanent then... alteration for generations to come. Right, right. And so many people that are working on CRISPR gene editing of, of humans for clinical purposes have a very strong uh, opposition to actually doing gene editing uh, at the embryo stage. Now, I mean, you could the, kill out the human race. You could make you could edit their genes to where they can't procreate. I mean that that could be used in chemical right. warfare, right? There's negative impacts of or negative uh, potential impacts of these things as well. Right. Well, the, the, I, I think you guys may remember a few years ago uh, there was a scientist in China that actually did CRISPR gene editing on human embryos, and he essentially disabled a particular protein that serves as the binding site for the HIV virus. Uh, and uh, as a result, the, 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 those embryos and the, and the individuals that would develop from those embryos would be resistant to, to AIDS, would be resistant to mm -hmm. HIV. Now, most people that have done those kind of experiments have stopped at the, they, they, they basically will kill the embryos after a, a couple of weeks. He went ahead and implanted those embryos into into surrogates, and the claim was that there was a there were births that were involved. Now he crossed the line that, and there was almost a there was a universal outcry against what he had done. Although there were some scientists who said, "Look, he just simply jumped the gun. This is it, this is an, invariably where we're headed with this kind of technology." And so this is where you could actually then do gene editing in such a way that you could evolve human beings into post-human species, where you could create designer babies and go even one step further and, and you know, now create human beings that, that have been modified to such a degree that they, they would really move beyond what it means to be a human. I'm curious what the outcry was, and not that it would surprise me at all. I can I can fathom a few ideas, but what what was the basic outcry when that happened? Why were people saying this is absolutely not okay? It, it wasn't so much on the basis of morality; it was more on the basis of safety. That we mm. don't know what the effects are going to be, you know, for those children, and now you're potentially introducing genes into the human gene pool that are non-natural. That was essentially the, the, the nature of the outcry. It wasn't that, you know, that this process, this procedure essentially involves the manipulations and the selection and destruction of, of human embryos, which to me as a, a Christian who holds right. to a pro-life position, I would find absolutely repugnant. Yeah. But it was it was more we're not really re quite ready for this. And you just you jump the gun. Right. But, yeah. you know, the, the, again, it was all, nearly a universal outcry. But there were a few people who said, look, you're being hard on this guy, but he's just simply going where we, we ultimately want to go. So there were a few honest people, I think, that really recognized, you know, where this technology is ultimately headed. Yeah. I remember there was one guy you talked about who oversees a major CRISPR, like they sell CRISPR kits for like as little as $5 yeah. or something like you edit your own genes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and one of the sayings is, you know, these days people get drunk and, and get tattoos, but one day they're gonna, they're gonna say, well, I got drunk and crispered myself. Um, <laughs> no. didn't he like, he like stood in front of a crowd of people and edited his own genes, right? It, who am I talking yeah. about here? The guy's name is Josiah Zayner. Uh, and, 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 and he's, a. You know, a, a biochemist. He's used to work at NASA, so he's a highly credible, high, you know, well-trained scientist. But he's pioneering this DIY movement. You know, this biology <laughs> DIY movement, which is really, you know, very frightening because the whole idea here is that, look, this is such a powerful transformative technology that uh, it needs to be democratized. It shouldn't just simply be in the hands of the the biomedical and the scientific elite. That, that everybody should have access to this technology and we should be able to use it any way that we want. Well, you know, not to sound elitist, but, you know, it's really a good thing that, that the scientific elite and the biomedical elites are actually utilizing or are in control of the technology because, you know, uh, even though we all have concerns about, you know, the types of decision-making that they may engage in, and whether or not something they do, you know, lacks wisdom, they at least have enough of an understanding of the technology to, to not 
you know, do things that are, are totally flagrant. But to have the technology in the hands of people that are untrained is really very frightening. And here's yeah. the problem with CRISPR, is it's such a powerful technology that is incredibly cheap and very easy to use. And so as you're, you're pointing out, Michael, you can go on Amazon and order a CRISPR gene editing kit. And if you have, you know, I think you just sold day, a few. <laughs> yeah. So, Wait, so same, this is actually available. Are you saying that like yeah. people could literally go on Amazon right now and do this? Yeah, yeah. So if you've got, you know, Amazon Prime and you get same day delivery, you know, you could order it in the morning and by that afternoon you could be doing, you know, a CRISPR gene editing, you know, experiment on your kitchen counter. Now, you know, the stuff that they sell on Amazon is rather benign. It, it's just kind of a, a novelty, you know, but, you know, but people like Josiah Zayner are selling gene editing kits for, you know, several thousand dollars, which still is relatively cheap in terms of a scientific technology that actually can be can do much more impressive things, you know, or who's the stop? Such as what? What's he what's he what's well, out there right me, now? What, what he did is he actually gene edited him, himself with a, um, a gene called um, uh, that it was with a gene editing package that disables a gene called myostatin. And myostatin codes for a, a protein that kind of regulates muscle growth. Yeah. Uh, and so when you disable that, you wind up having muscle growth that becomes uncontrolled. And so Chinese scientists did an experiment where they uh, it disabled the myostatin gene in a particular dog breed. And when you look at that dog breed, it really looks like- It's know, ripped. This, it's ripped. It's it's a it's very grotesque. But you know it it and, and so you know people are looking at you know using that technology. I mean, so you know, I'm just you know, imagining yeah. like the uh, the advertisements for that. Would you like your dog to squat four hundred pounds? <laughs> yes. Well, well, the thing is, is that you know, for somebody, let's say, if you're suffering from a, a muscle wasting disease, that kind of gene like editing MS. Could, yeah, right. That kind of, you know, technology could actually help reverse the, 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 the symptoms and improve the quality of life for people. But, you know, if you're just giving that to a, a normal, healthy individual, and you could easily see athletes being swayed into doing this, you now suddenly yeah, become, steroid. you know, yeah, you, you become superhuman in strength, you know, and uh, there's a, a biotech company in Argentina that's looking at developing these super racehorses using that that very technology uh, it changes it changes everything it doesn't make it fun anymore i mean there's no more debates over michael jordan versus lebron because now you have like a nine foot three dude who can jump crazy high and uh, i mean the reason the you start affecting everything yeah okay it Miller, I thought... out of the olympics for that reason yeah absolutely yeah. um hey we have some chatter in the chat which is where the chatter comes uh, about the mark of the beast. We can't talk transhumanism without talking about the mark <laughs> of the beast. Now, theologically speaking, I'm not even going to ask your opinion. Um, I I'm going to ask it because it's really those who come from the the dispensational uh, school of thought for the most for the most part who are going to say, well, hey, when Revelation 13 talks about the mark of the beast, uh, this is a, a physical uh, maybe could be microchip at least that used, that was kind of like the old school view and it kind of keeps getting upgraded with uh different versions of technology but but basically you can't buy and sell except if you have this mark on the back of your right hand or on your forehead given the technologies that we're talking about it seems like that's i mean that's already possible that's been possible for a long time but could you talk through just if let, let's assume for a moment you did you held to like a physical mark of the beast. That was your interpretation. How would transhumanism fit into that sort of conversation? Yeah, well, you know, uh, well, you know, for example, and in, in, gosh, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist uh, by any means when it comes to this type of stuff. But, you know, one of the ideas that that Bill Gates has advocated is to, to use the use of what are called quantum dots that would be incorporated into um, into vaccines, and so the idea is that when you receive a vaccine, these these quantum dots would be these these particles essentially 
would be essentially uh, introduced into your, your body just beneath the skin and that they would contain a record that could be read as to what vaccines that you had received and, and when you received those vaccines. So it becomes mm. a way in which your vaccination record becomes a permanent part of, of your biological makeup. And so you can begin to see that, you know, that kind of technology really being used to, 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 to label people. So then you can't buy, sell, trade because you ha- you, uh, your vax right. tracks shows you that uh, you haven't been vaccinated. Right. And so you, you could easily begin to see how how that kind of a technology could be used as, you know, uh, essentially the mark of the beast. But, you know, in terms, you know, we've talked a little bit about the idea that transhumanism is, a you know, a false gospel. And it's going to become a very appealing gospel, you know, in in the years to come. Right. You know, as we become more and more secular, you know, as people become to re- rely more and more on science to to solve our problems you know, our ultimate problem is, again, our, our, our mortality. And so could we mm-hmm. attain, you know, a practical immortality? But you could begin to see a world where the expectation is that you, you know, that you do undergo certain types of gene editing. You know, you could even easily see a scenario where, you know, you would have to be genetically fingerprinted, you know, your genome sequenced. And if you and your spouse you know, have, um, or your partner have genes that would make your offspring susceptible to certain genetic disorders, that in order to have a child, you have to submit yourself to, you know, kind of a gene editing protocol where the embryos that you produce in vitro would undergo gene editing to eliminate that particular genetic disorder. And if you don't, then you no longer, that your child isn't going to be eligible for, for medical care because you've willingly, you know, gave birth to a child that is a, has a genetic defect. So you could begin to see kind of a high-tech type of eugenics, or if you don't agree to certain genetic modifications, um, you know, that, that again, you know, you uh, are going to be labeled as an outcast of sorts. You're, you're going to be marginalized and that you could, again, keep track of the kind of genetic modifications through you know, things like quantum dot technology. So I could easily see, you know, um, you know, a, a, us, this leading us towards kind of a, you know, a, a one world order where you could, you could see uh, people being pressured into, uh, into accepting, uh, you know, the transhumanist and human enhancement technologies, whether they want to or not, that they're, they're kind of forced into that. So, that that easily leads you to, you know, a number of, of scenarios that I think fit with, you know, the, the biblical perspective on end times, right? Yeah. Okay. Miller, what? Okay. <laughs> you don't look like you have a question. Josh does that to me all I the know, time. I know. I don't. It's puts... fascinating. Yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> I, I just I'm just not awkwarded out by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I I want to come to uh, just to another question as we're kind of jumping on different ways in which transhumanism it encroaches on image of god christian view of salvation christian view of eschatology let's talk about the christian view of death the transhumanistic view of death because if we're talking about okay so people living well over a hundred being the norm according to the one quote that i read and then others saying hundreds of years i mean that sounds unfathomable this is like bible times we're going back to the early days i'm gonna in fact there's like a methuselah ah what's it called some sort of sort of organization that has methuselah in the name Uh, no way yeah there is so uh talk to us uh talk to us about some of this anti-aging technology in the context of two views of death the christian view and the transhumanistic view like benjamin yeah 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 well you know it's and the the Found, the organization is called the Methuselah Foundation, and it's headed up by a, a biogerontologist by the name of Aubrey de Grey, who is a highly credible, uh, you know, life scientist who is advocating for uh, essentially anti-aging technology, where he believes that we could very easily extend human life expectancy into the range of several hundreds of years. And of course, that kind of wide-scale application of anti-aging technology would literally change 
the, the nature of the world that we live in uh, and, and, and not necessarily for the best. But, you know, if you have a, a materialistic, atheistic view of, of, human, of, of human nature, then when you die, you die. That's it. And so you want to do everything you can to extend life expectancy with the idea that that longer life expectancy would also come along with a high quality of life. That that, that that becomes an overarching motivation, but it really does lead to a very selfish world where your concern is essentially, what can I do to stay alive? What can I do to, uh, you know, to uh, retain, you know, my quality of life uh, as long as I possibly can? And, you know, and, and that's very different because throughout human history, we always have looked at, you know, uh, our a legacy as being really something that our children and grandchildren would carry with us, and that we 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 you know that that we recognize that that the next generation is very important. And even if you don't have kids, you're willing to invest your life to make sure that the lives of the next generation are better, that 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 they have every advantage that they mm-hmm. can have. And that leads to a very selfless world or a much more selfless world where you're interested in what can I do for those people that come after me? How can I help those people? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that, that spreads over to being a willing to help other people in a, in a anti, in a world where anti-aging technology becomes the norm, th- there's going to be an inherent conflict between generations where the, the, the new generation is going to see, the, pre, the current generation is being in the way and the current generation is going to see the new generation as being a threat. And, and so I think it's going to fundamentally change the world that we live in. But, you know, from a Christian perspective, you know, we, we recognize that, that our, our life has ultimate meaning because there is a finite nature to it and that we, there's an urgency to what we do as we live. If you could live for as long as, as, you, as you know, you could possibly imagine it would take a lot of the meaning out of life. It would take a lot of the urgency out of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so you're, you're willing to live and to try to live to its fullest extent because you recognize your lifetime is finite, that you're willing to invest in, in other people, uh, not, you know, because you, you want to establish a, a legacy mm-hmm. that is really uh, in the hands of, of those people that follow after you. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and ultimately you're willing to, to, to live a life of, of finite duration because you recognize that, that what is to come beyond this lifetime is really the ultimate goal. That, yeah. you know, that, that eternal life is what is awaiting us uh, and that the lifetime that we live here is meant to accomplish certain things, namely, you know, to glorify God, to, to share the love of God with others, hopefully introduce people to the to to the, a relationship with God through the person of Christ, you know, through the gospel, that that becomes our purpose from a, a Christian perspective, mm. where we want to do that and do that well, but we we realize that that um, we have an assignment while we're here, but this isn't the this isn't the entire story, and yeah. and this is I think what's completely lost with transhumanism, you know, but but this is where I think the gospel has enormous amount of power you know, ironically in a world that's going to be shaped by transhumanism because the obsession now becomes with salvation. Mm-hmm. How do we save ourselves? How do we attain eternal life? And I think it's very easy to show that technology and science can never truly save us, that they ultimately, yeah. that techno faith is ultimately a false gospel. And this is where we can if present the gospel, where the gospel suddenly be, takes on relevance in a very exciting and a very fresh way. Because, you know, if trans, transhumanists are ultimately guilty of seeking after salvation in the wrong places, but they, they recognize that death isn't natural, that, that there's mm-hmm. something tragic when an individual dies. There's something tragic in, in, in thinking about the demise of human beings as a, as a, as a species, mm-hmm. that, that, that the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And that that we need to do what we can to to mitigate pain and suffering, to to try to create a utopian world. These are 
really wonderful ideals. And there's nothing wrong with turning to science and technology as a tool to help us at least, you know, while we are here on earth to, to promote human flourishing, to mitigate suffering wherever we can. But we ultimately recognize that, that true salvation is found in the person of Christ, not in what technology can bring to bear. And this is where I think there are some interesting bridge points between Christianity and transhumanism that really make the gospel relevant in a powerful way. Yeah. Okay. Love that. Well, uh, we're getting to that point of the show where we need to kind of uh, tie things up. And so, uh, Fuzz, love for you to maybe think about a closing thought, how you'd summarize, or just any closing thought you'd like to, like to leave people with. And then uh, Michael Miller, I'll, I'll have Michael go first, Fuzz, so that uh, you have a chance to kind of think of what you want to say. Michael's a little more used to this. So, Michael, um, what would be your summarizing thought or just what you would like people to walk away with? Well, it does seem like the, the, the transhuman vision is anti-gospel. I don't think those two things, at least the transhuman vision, I don't think that's reconcilable with the gospel. Um, I think the the very idea that we try to save ourselves um, is, is just the opposite of humility. I mean, the whole point of coming to Christ is our recognition of our need for him. Um, and so I would say it's counter-gospel, and it's something that you mentioned the very end of that about how we think of the next generation i think of the the passage of scripture in the proverbs says a man who doesn't leave an inheritance for his sons is worse than the pagans and that uh there's a sense in which we cannot experience godlike love until we love something more than ourselves and mm. and the transhuman gospel so to speak does just the opposite it's all about you becoming your most fulfilled self rather than yeah. um, becoming about others and so uh, I, it's definitely antithetical to that, at least its vision and its agenda. Yeah. Um, yes, I would leave with that. Awesome. Okay, Fuzz, what about uh, what about you? What would be your closing thought? Yeah, you know, and, and I would actually agree with Michael's points. Um, and to me, I, I do see transhumanism as one of the most influential ideas that is going to be with us in the next couple of decades. A lot of people will be persuaded by the false gospel of transhumanism. Uh, but I do think one of the things that transhumanism does that's very interesting is it really exposes the human need uh, to connect with that which is transcendent. It really exposes mm -hmm. the, the, the human need for hope, purpose, and destiny. And, and so this is what I think we need to really work on in terms of capitalizing it. But I think as Christians, we have to be aware of what transhumanism is about. We have to be willing to engage this idea uh, and, and to do it with an, an element of sophistication. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, you know, I think it, 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 it gives us an opportunity to really uh, present the gospel uh, to people in our culture in a way in which they are going to be probably much more oriented towards hearing the gospel. You know, I, I work for a science faith organization and, you know, part of our challenge is to, 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 to you know, it, to challenge the notion that uh, science makes belief in God, you know, irrelevant, that, that science becomes a barrier to the gospel. And what I see with transhumanism is the opposite, is that, that transhumanism is really laying bare the need that we all have in what the gospel ultimately offers us. Amen. Well, yeah, exposes. Uh, yeah, totally. And totally agree with those, uh, with everything that you guys said. And, uh, Fuzz, I love the way in your book, you, you say, Hey, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater there. There's good, there's bad. And you really give us the tools, uh, to sort through that. So I encourage you guys, if you're interested in this subject by, uh, by his book, humans 2.0. And, uh, and so, yeah, fantastic read. Uh, Fuzz, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Fazali Rana, for those who want the full name, and uh, and love to have you back on sometime. Maybe we can uh, chat about you know the historical Adam, 
some of the things that you've studied. So uh, everybody, thank you so much for joining us and look forward to seeing you. Of course, on Tuesdays, we're releasing those, uh, those short clips from our conference in November with theologians from all over the world. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we're going we're gonna to be back. It's going uh, to be me and Michael. Josh will still be on the cruise. Uh, but man, it's going to be an exciting show talking through uh, more prophecy reviews. And uh, these ones from Destiny's Image. And so we keep getting all these requests. <laughs> review the prophecies. Review the prophecies. So we're, you know, what the scripture says, First Timothy 5, uh, to test prophecy. So we're going to obey that scripture and do that. Uh, you guys, if you enjoyed the show, hit the like button, hit the share button, and possibly hit the donate button. Uh, PayPal for a one-time, Patreon for a recurring donation. Thank you guys so much for joining us. God bless you all, and have a great week. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.